0: At Genentech, addressing the often overlooked drivers of health inequities starts with asking bigger questions. Are communities of color merely underrepresented in research, or have they been historically and systemically excluded? What can we learn from the wisdom of communities most harmed by injustice when we talk with them instead of at them? What does it take to become worthy of their trust? Addressing these questions and many others starts with acknowledging the root cause of health inequities, systemic racism. As the founders of the biotech industry, Genentech is actively working with community organizations to repair the damage caused by systemic racism and improve health outcomes. Learn more about how Genentech is working to transform society at gene.com slash ask bigger questions.
1: This is Long Island, a place
0: where things have happened, are happening, are going to happen. Out here, there's room to breathe. You can afford your own home with a yard.
2: There's room for the boys to grow among the trees in open spaces, the way I did, not surrounded by asphalt and concrete.
3: That was a clip from a Newsday video from the 1960s. Back then, Long Island was seen as an affordable utopia for people looking to raise a family. But that's no longer the case. Like many places across the country, Long Island is in the midst of a housing crisis. Rent has skyrocketed. The average price for a two-bedroom apartment in Nassau and Suffolk is nearly $2,300, compared to $1,680 a decade ago. And the cost of buying a home here is absurdly expensive. In July, the median home price in Nassau hit a record of $725,000. I'm at an age now where I'm thinking about putting down roots and starting a family. And every day, that idea of an affordable home with a yard on Long Island seems more and more out of reach. We've been saying all season that where you live affects your health. And these days, just being able to choose where you live let alone being able to get a place to live, are ideals that many people simply cannot afford. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur, and this is Color Code, a podcast about health disparities and racism in medicine. For our final episode of the season, we're taking a look at how housing is healthcare and what that means in the midst of a housing crisis.
0: As rent prices rise across the country, more people are struggling to make ends meet. Now that the pandemic's renter protection programs have expired, eviction filing rates are soaring. One reason is the rising rents and a shortage of affordable housing for those with the lowest incomes. Home affordability as of this morning is at a 38-year low. Regardless of where you look, shelter costs are just simply expensive.
3: It's a very savagely unhealthy housing market and not much is going to change. Like many parts of the country, many Long Islanders are struggling to find and pay for housing. And earlier this year, the battle for affordable housing erupted on Long Island. Governor Kathy Hochul put forth a plan to address the housing challenges here and across the state of New York.
2: Through zoning and local communities are able to hold enormous power to block growth. Between full bans on multifamily housing and onerous zoning and approval processes, they make it difficult, almost impossible, to build new homes. Think about that. People want to live here. They have jobs here. Because of local decisions to limit growth, they cannot. Local governments can and should make a difference.
3: Governor Hoko's goal was to build 800,000 new homes and apartment units across the state over the next decade. Her proposal would also reform local zoning. That would allow the state government to override
0: local
2: zoning decisions. The suburban delegations, you know, Long Island, Westchester, and maybe some other places, pushed back against that because of the community reaction to losing control over local zoning was so powerful.
3: That's Olivia Winslow. She's a demographic reporter at Newsday, and she's been at the paper for over three decades. During that time, she's documented how Long Island has become more diverse while still remaining heavily segregated.
2: In a suburb like Long Island, it's single-family homes that is the high ideal, and uh, you get a lot of pushback uh, uh, for apartments, And particularly if you say affordable apartments and people view that as, you know, people coming in, non-whites coming in from New York City and, you know, changing the character of Long Island.
3: Governor Hochul's plan was met with fierce bipartisan backlash from local leadership on Long Island. Many local leaders called Hochul's plan an attack on suburbia. Here's Don Claiborne, the Hempstead Town Supervisor, speaking at a rally against the plan this past spring. He was standing in front of a podium that was adorned with a big sign that read SOS, for Save Our Suburbs. And I couldn't help but notice that he was surrounded by his fellow officials, most if not all of whom were white.
0: These officials know local issues and they know local development. I'd like to just send a little message to the governor that she should really understand that we don't want local control, we want local control of all the zoning.
3: Zoning has long been used to keep black and brown populations out of certain white neighborhoods. Some housing activists are calling it the new redlining. It's helped enable governments to put health hazards and waste sites like incinerators and landfills into black and brown neighborhoods. When the governor tried to use zoning reform to create more affordable housing for low-income families, many communities on Long Island became enraged. I'm sure you've heard the term before, NIMBYs, or not in my backyard. Some New York officials saw that at the core of the debate over zoning and affordable housing was racial discrimination. Here's how Zelnor Myrie of the New York State Senate explained it at a different rally in Albany this past spring.
0: When black people fled the South, leaving Jim Crow, they came up to the North and found his nephews and nieces running the housing policy. We were explicitly excluded from living in places in this state. The banks would not lend to us. The towns would not welcome us. The villages would not open their doors to us. So we were confined to specific neighborhoods and like black and brown people do, we made the best of that situation. All of us are shouldering the affordable housing burden while places around the state don't. They exclude us, still. So here's what we're saying today. Yes, it is important for us to build more housing, but we have to do it in a way that is equitable. We have to do it in a way that gives the promise to everybody, including our black and brown people.
3: He pointed out that due to zoning, communities of color already shoulder most of the affordable housing compared with wealthier, whiter communities. For example, Hempstead Village, which you might remember from our Food Desert episode, has around 2,800 units of federally and state-subsidized housing, whereas Garden City, the white and affluent town literally right next to it, has a whopping zero. Ultimately, Governor Hochul's plan for affordable housing on Long Island and elsewhere in New York failed. It didn't get the support it needed and was discarded from the final state budget. It's emblematic of a sort of dissonance on Long Island, as Olivia put it,
2: there have been recent polls by various groups. People want more affordable housing. They see young people, you know, are leaving, they go off to college and they don't come back, or if they do come back, they're living in their parents' basement and they're unhappy about that. So there needs to be affordable housing for uh, young adults and for seniors as well, right, who don't want the big house anymore. And yet, you know, people who want these options are concerned about changing the character of Long Island, Um, and so there's a disconnect, there's a dissonance. So while they recognize the need for a greater array of housing options, exactly how to do that, there is no consensus.
3: Not changing the character of Long Island. It's a sentiment that many NIMBYs on Long Island expressed. And I'm sure you could read through the lines here. The racial overtones of the affordable housing debate remind me of another facet of housing discrimination on Long Island. In 2019, Newsday released a bombshell investigative report where they found widespread racial discrimination done by real estate agents on Long Island. Olivia was one of the lead reporters on the story. This was a three-year-long investigation, So basically, Newsday conducted these undercover tests at real estate offices across Long Island. They gave the testers fake names and hidden cameras to record their interactions with the real estate agents. The Newsday team would send a white tester, then a little while later, they would send a non-white tester, who was either black, Latino, or Asian, to that same real estate agent. Both of the testers came into the real estate agencies with the same exact profile. They had the same incomes, same number of kids, same marital status, and the same preferences for location. Basically, the only differences between the testers were the color of their skin. The Newsday team wanted to see if the real estate agents would provide different treatment to the potential home buyers based on their race.
2: Newsday found evidence of widespread unequal treatment of potential minority home buyers The evidence of disparate treatment was highest for Newsday's black testers at 49%, for Latinos it was 39%, and for Asians it was 19%.
3: The reporters got over 5,000 listings from the real estate agents. They plotted the listings on a map of Long Island and noticed in many cases, white testers were more likely to get listings in predominantly white neighborhoods, while black and Hispanic testers were more likely to get listings in minority neighborhoods. Again, these were testers with identical profiles.
2: Our black tester got a whole lot of listings in Brentwood, which is a heavily Latino community, whereas the white tester he was paired with didn't. And so that uh, was a sign of a problem.
3: The Newsday experiment documented evidence of real estate agents steering the potential home buyers toward or away from certain neighborhoods based on their race. Racial steering is illegal. It was outlawed by the Fair Housing Act, but is very much alive on Long Island. It has also been recorded in other parts of the country, such as in Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Atlanta. When I first read the report, my jaw dropped. I remember sending it to every one of my family members who lived here on Long Island. It basically broke our group chat. We were talking about it so much. A lot of feelings of, oh my gosh, this is what I've experienced, or I told you, I told you. I mean, the report showed that basically half of the black testers were discriminated against by the real estate agents. Now, one of the testers in the investigation was Martine Hackett the public health professor and suburban health expert at Hofstra University, who has been a frequent guest on our podcast this season.
2: When I would go to, you know, real estate offices or to, um, you know, tours or whatever, people treated me fine. I had no problem. People treated me fine. It's when they sat us down with the tester and then they show you the data Mm -hmm. (laughs) about what happened. Like, okay, here is the same real estate agent. This is what they gave you. This is what they gave you. Wow. I try not to be a paranoid person, and I'm not. Except when I heard that, I was like, it made me feel like, whoa, people be treating you in a way that you think is like, this is fine, but it's not fine. And it really, it scared me. (laughs) It really did, actually, because it makes you realize, like, where else is this happening?
3: I empathize so much with Martine for feeling that bit of paranoia. You'd want to ignore it But it's always in the back of your mind. Like what Dr. Robert Bullitt said in our second episode, the toxic racism finds us. It finds black and brown people. And here in this Newsday investigation, we find direct evidence of that. Now it shouldn't surprise anyone that the stresses of finding affordable housing and having a home that's actually habitable affects people's health. We know based on a lot of research correlations between quality of housing and quality of health, but we don't have a lot of studies that explain how this occurs. There's growing interest in research that examines how social determinants of health like housing affect people's health outcomes. Alina schnake Mall, an assistant professor of health management and policy at Drexel University, has focused some of her research on studying how life in suburbia affects people's health.
1: Oh, so many ways. Um, Housing is in many ways the platform for health, right? You can think about it and there's so many mechanisms that connect housing. There's the physical conditions of the house. There's things like whether you're exposed to lead paint, whether there are major risks for falling in a house. Um, There's things about what the conditions around respiratory viruses and how well air circulates. We can really think about that with COVID. We can think about how many people live in a house. Again, major COVID factor and the risks of respiratory infections. Um, and then you can think about housing affordability and cost and cost is a major factor that impacts how much money you have in your pocket um, which then impacts what food you can eat what healthcare you can get um, what jobs you're able to, to take or not take so many factors there and if you even think about if you don't have an address it's really hard to get a job right there are little things like that
3: alina offered the example that people who are at risk of eviction probably aren't spending their time getting in their 10,000 steps each day. It's hard to prioritize healthy living when you're just trying to keep a roof over your head.
1: There's a lot of research that shows that the housing quality in a neighborhood impacts community level health and population level health in really in adverse ways, right? Places that have more low quality housing tend to have worse health outcomes. Places with more housing crowding tend to have worse health outcomes. Places that are residentially and racially segregated have a myriad of negative health impacts. And because those all impact things like stress pathways, um, like what services are available, because what housing exists in a place is also related to what businesses in our place and to larger patterns of divestment or investment in places. And when we talk about residential segregation, people often think about that as being just about kind of the racial composition of who lives in places, but it's not, it's about those overlapping systems and those systems of divestment that have created neighborhoods without economic opportunity with lots of similarly kind of poor quality housing often that all kind of go together and kind of build on each other to create conditions that it can be really negative for health.
3: This echoes what Dr. Helen Meyer and Dr. Bruce Mitchell told us in our COVID and redlining episode. It's all about desirability. When communities are devalued in the eyes of city planners and government officials, they may not be likely to place amenities like hospitals or transportation hubs. Land may be cheaper, allowing things like factories and landfills to move in, all of which eventually affects the health and well-being of the people living there.
1: I think we're starting to embrace the idea that as public health practitioners, we need to understand the effects of policies and how policies impact health and health disparities. And we're starting to do a lot more of that. You can see a lot more research recently on understanding policy effects. Um, So my research, for example, is going to look at rent regulations and impact on influenza hospitalizations. So trying to draw some of those connections between well, what happens if, you know, rent doesn't increase by a lot. Maybe that means that you have less housing crowding, and that may mean that there's less respiratory infection. Um, And other people, I think, are starting to ask questions about zoning regulations and how that impacts health. Um, And then thinking a bit about the kind of larger political structures that create the opportunity for zoning regulation or not for these kinds of policies. And people are starting to embrace that.
3: And all this research is even more pertinent in the suburbs. We know that the idea of suburbs being white, wealthy, and healthy is now largely a thing of the past. The face of suburbia is changing, and with new people comes increasing complexity.
1: What we've really seen over the past 30 or so years, beginning in the 90s, is a real increase in the rates of um, low-income people moving to suburbs, as well as increasing racial diversity in the suburbs. And that has implications for health. 40% of the uninsured population lives in suburbs. That's huge. That's a huge segment of the population. This was around 2017, but I don't think that the, the numbers have changed all that much. So there's this huge vulnerable population living in these areas um, that's, again, getting overlooked. And that was, that was pretty, Pretty surprising to me, um, just how large the magnitude of that was.
3: The numbers are much higher than I would have guessed. One issue is that the safety nets for healthcare haven't kept up with these vulnerable groups as they've moved from the city to the suburbs.
1: One of the major challenges, particularly about this increase in suburban poverty that we've seen, is that kind of historically much of the healthcare safety net, so community health centers, um, hospitals that serve large low-income populations, those have been located in urban areas. They haven't been located in suburban areas. And some of that literally has to do with the policies around how you locate these these places that you have to sort of demonstrate need and they don't update them very frequently. So you don't have as many of these institutions. There's also not community-based organizations, mental health care providers. Providers are less likely to take Medicaid in suburban areas and often, and this is one of the major challenges around suburbs, you have to be able to get to the healthcare institutions, but there's no public transportation in most suburban areas, which particularly creates challenges for for low-income folks. And so we really, we have not um, shifted our healthcare infrastructure to recognize the new patterns of housing, particularly with increasing populations of of low-income people in suburban areas. We're still not kind of catching up to serve them well. So
3: what is the kind of solution here in terms of uh, um, um, housing and, and, and health incomes or fighting, combating health disparities? Is it as simple as more affordable housing?
1: I've thought about that a lot. I did a lot of research on gentrification at a time. And often I think the answer is outside of health. It's in other areas. It is in the housing space. It's in the education space. It's in the occupational space. Um, but I think that there are some some solutions, some things that get us partially there. I think that's the stickiness of it. Is it's not one. It's not from one sector that we can kind of create solutions. But I think there are policies. So things like just cause eviction or good cause eviction, minimum wage, you know, rent regulation where you limit the increase on how fast housing. Prices can increase. And I think there's things about in a lot of places where we have housing crisis, creating more housing, making sure we bank in affordability in those places. And it's getting rid of some things like exclusionary zoning policies that say you can't build anything but single family homes. I think it's this confluence of of creating policies that support people, that create housing, that help people stay in their housing, that create additional income support so that it's not Just you pay all of your money to rent, um, but then you also have something on top of that. And being really intentional about creating the conditions through policy that allow people to, to live in healthy neighborhoods.
3: I agree with Alina that policies are important for ensuring people have a healthy place to live. It certainly feels difficult to make policies that bring upon change happen on Long Island, though. I mean, the steps towards reforming exclusionary zoning here to help low-income folk, many of whom are black and brown, those efforts were met with such fierce opposition and nimbyism. The racial overtones of saving the suburbs, concerns over the changing character of Long Island, especially when housing is so essential to healthcare. It's just the you don't belong here aspect of it all. It stings. It's reminiscent of that searing pain I felt as a kid in my classmate's pool when she said that her dad was worried about her inviting a black boy over. It's just another, you don't belong here. And hearing Martine Hackett speak about her experience going undercover for the Newsday investigation, being face to face with real estate agents who judged her the moment they saw the color of her skin it's the insidiousness of it all. Long Island's a place that can shake your hand and flash a smile, yet turn its back when you shout out against the landfill poisoning your community, or look away from the incinerator fumes suffocating your children. Honestly, y'all, this has been a particularly difficult season for me to report on. I think it's because it's just so personal. And the more I learn about Long Island, the more I wrestle with my own ignorance about the place I call home. I mean, I'm still shocked that I didn't know that it played such a huge role in the eugenics movement. That's still wild to me, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. So much of this place and its wrongs are hidden or not addressed. I started this journey feeling like Long Island was divided and the deeper I looked, the deeper that divide appeared. To end off this season with a look at the housing crisis here, it seems fitting because it's a problem with a solution a solution that many on Long Island don't want or refuse to address. It's emblematic of so many of the other crises on this island, the waste crisis, the food desert crisis, the maternal mortality crisis. It really just makes me think about my own future on Long Island, and not just if I can continue to call this place home, but whether I even want to. All that said, it's also clear that many of these problems aren't unique to Long Island. Long Island, after all, is a model of suburbs across America. And as we've seen this season, you can't just brush off the suburbs as all being white, wealthy, and healthy. One thing that has given me hope from this season are the many advocates, clinicians, and community members I've met on the front lines trying to make things better. They fought to close landfills. They provided help to prevent newborn mothers from falling through the cracks and they delivered nutritious meals to those in need. They didn't buckle or yield when faced with injustices in their communities. To me, their work serves as an example to all of us to continue to push forward and fight for solutions. Thank you all for listening to this last episode of our second season of Color Code. It's been a journey. <sighs> but as always, thank you so incredibly much for being part of our Color Code community. I appreciate it more than you now. For the final time this season, our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empanado, Teresa Gaffney, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Anil Oza is our intern. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach us at at statnews.com.